0: Hello, this is Scott Gents. Welcome to Sandbox Stories. Welcome to this sandbox story, which is an interview with Dr. Mose Nasser, Dr. Nasser's stories and successes in optometry and philanthropy are due to his incredible commitment to his fellow humans. And I was grateful over my time in my career to get to know him. I look forward to introducing him to you too. Welcome to sandbox stories, Dr. Nasser.
1: Well, hello there. Uh, good to be with you, uh, and, and I appreciate your kind, uh, invitation. Uh, always a pleasure to talk to you.
0: Well, thank you. I really can't wait to get into the first topic, which is your birth in Tanzania and the story of your early childhood. You ended up getting interested in eye care through your own experience, but tell us a little bit about the very early days of your life.
1: So I was born to Indian parents. Uh, in fact, uh, my on my paternal side, my great-grandfather moved to East Africa uh, in a sailboat uh, from India uh, looking for uh, job, uh, economic opportunities. Uh, My mother was born in India, you know, so I'm Indian but I've never lived in India. Uh, I grew up uh, in Tanzania. My father and my grandfather on the paternal side uh, were both born in Kenya Okay. And, and and my father then moved to Tanzania. I was born in a small village. Uh, not that you would be interested in the name, but it's Nyambiti, um, and, and it's you know about forty-five miles south of Lake uh, Victoria. Um, and so I was born at home and uh, grew up uh, going to a, a small school. Uh, which was a one-classroom school. The entire school was one classroom okay. and with one teacher. Okay. And it, it uh, catered to grades 1 to grade 7. So the teacher would call the students of grade 1, and you know, a few of us who are in grade 1 would surround his desk, and he would teach us a lesson, and then it would be uh, a chance for grade 3, grade 7, what have you. Uh, So that's how uh, my early education was. And then I was blessed to go to a nearby town uh, on the shores of Lake Victoria. It's the second largest city in in Tanzania today, Mwanza, And I did my secondary school there. Uh, So uh, growing up was uh, very, very challenging, uh, but we made it.
0: What was the native language you learned growing up before you evidently came later to learn English?
1: Um, Initially, because of my Indian heritage, we spoke a couple of Indian dialects. And of course, Swahili was uh, the national language, so we all spoke Swahili. And I still speak Swahili today. So I speak uh, three Indian dialects uh, Swahili and and a little bit of English.
0: You had told me earlier that you felt like English was a second language and you speak many languages clearly. Um, where in the path did you learn English? Did any of that come in your early childhood or after you had moved?
1: So I had gone to a school, in, even in my primary school, uh, which was um, uh, the, the, the school was uh, under the ages of Aga Khan Foundation. And I'm a follower of His Highness the Aga Khan, our spiritual leader. And he emphasized that we should learn English. So English was always taught to us, but in, not in a, in a form uh, that it is taught here. Uh, so fast forward, when I came to United States, uh, my scores in the standardized test was very poor, uh, so we had to. I had to take um, English as second language for six months before going mainstream into other curriculum. So, so Mrs. Lloyd was my teacher here in Houston, and and uh, uh, till this date, I remember how she taught me and how I couldn't understand what she was trying to tell me because I was. An adult by then, and and whatever whatever I'd learned before stayed with me, uh, and and you know again today also most often Scott I, I still think in the Indian languages that I grew up with, and kind of translate it into. them yep. So 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 you probably can sense that that I, I sometimes react slowly.
0: Well, I've always felt like that. Your demonstration of your words and your thoughts and the pace at which you do them give you a thoughtfulness as opposed to a uh, there's an interpretation reel running in the background, whichever it is. You've always been very good and careful and sometimes measured with your words. And, and I'm in, always impressed by people who know so many languages as you do. Thank you. T- tell me about your experience as a child through blurred vision, and then ultimately, how you ended up getting experience with eye care?
1: Um, very, very good question. Um, in in my village, there was not TV, there was radio, but only one person on the radio. Okay? And, and when Armstrong landed on the moon, uh, we all gathered around this one radio, which was on by our neighbor. And and he pointed to us at the moon and says, "Do you see Armstrong? That little spot you see on the south side is Armstrong." And we believed him. So that, that is kind of uh, our uh, you know uh, our understanding, our intellectual capacity, if you may, at that time. You know, uh, but in the context of what you just asked me, um, every month there used to be a, a truck which would come around the different villages and they would market the different products available at that time so it could be Tylenol it could be other medications it could be soap and they would uh, you know it was it was almost like a tv in public they would put a big screen and and they would project a John Wayne movie uh, together with these commercials and I couldn't see that My father had the wisdom, my father has no secondary education, but he, God bless his soul, he passed away. But before he passed away, I think he was 20 times, 50 times even more intelligent than I was. At that time, he had the intelligence to, to give me a cardboard and drill a hole through a cardboard in essence, creating a pinhole camera. So I used to watch these movies and these commercials with the cardboard on my on my face with a pinhole. Wow. When I first got my glasses when I went to the, the city of Manza, I remember, clearly remember putting my glasses on and reacting to the same way or even more profoundly than you see with our patients. I was minus three and I, I, that was my first pair of glasses in the city. Okay? I still remember he used some cycloplegic and I couldn't see, the eyes were dilated, I was very sensitive uh, and all that, but no, I didn't get the uh, goggles or sunglasses. So so there you go. So, So that was my first exposure and then I left it alone and I always wanted to be a doctor. My mother wanted me to be a doctor. And, and I pursued and pursued, and, and uh, unfortunately, I could not uh, pursue further education in Tanzania uh, because of some issues with the Indian community. Uh, you may recall some history that uh, in 1972, uh, President Idi Amin of Uganda, uh, he expelled all the Asians uh, within days uh, with just, just one suitcase of their clothing, and they were expelled and they moved to countries like UK and Canada and United States and others. Uh, so there was a fear amongst the community that something like that happened. So, so, so you know, I, I left and I was fortunate to get a scholarship from uh, Aga Khan Foundation in Switzerland to come to any school in north america so so i ended up in houston and um, uh, a little disappointment at that stage because i was not uh, able to go to medical school uh, because i was a foreign student mm-hmm. and there was no slots in houston for foreign students in medical school at that time and totally understandable there were so many people locally who wanted to go to medical school why wouldn't we not cater to them first? And I totally agree with that. So one day I was, uh, I was at a bus stop in Houston. And I saw an optometrist's office right across. And I said, what is this? It's a doctor, you know, what's going on? So I went in. I went inside the office. I asked for the doctor. The doctor saw me. And I asked him, I was my self esteem was pretty poor. So I asked him, I said, I said, what is optometry? And I think he was a bit annoyed uh, that why are you wasting my time in between patients right now? I'm busy and asking me such questions. You should probably have done your research. Um, uh, <clears throat> by the way, that doctor's daughter was my vision source member. Wow. So it went full circle, right and and uh, and she knows about this story. you know he has since passed away. Uh, God bless his soul, but he you know talked to me and he allowed me to go back and talk to him again, and that's how it kindled my my interest in optometry. went to optometry school, found out there's one slot for foreign students. I applied got in, you know, and that's why I'm an optometrist, and I'm very happy this was my path of my career because it is the most amazing career that one could be in, absolutely no questions in my mind. I'm glad that I was not a, a, a physician or a surgeon or what have you. Uh, this was my calling. And I loved it. I practice for 39 years. And I, I just absolutely amazed by the profession.
0: Well, you graduated the University of Houston Optometry School in 1982. And I, I'd like to take you back to your mindset as best you remember it when you graduated. What do you think your goals were? Do, do you, were you expressly looking to, you know, change the lives of the people who gave you, go- you were gonna give glasses like you got them, Was it to be a great business person? Do you remember what those goals were? I'd be interested in what your your aspirations were on that day.
1: I've never been asked this question. So my thoughts are coming as a flow in my mind right now. My goal was just one at that time, I think, is just to have a shelter and to have food on the table. Because many a times before that, I've gone to sleep without food. I'm the youngest sibling in my family and nobody has gone to college. Not because they didn't want to, but they couldn't. So they all worked hard for me to go to college. So so the, the, the only thing in my mind was to make a living and have food on the table and support my family who was still in East Africa. You know, and that's all. I didn't yeah, ever think about uh, helping people see. I didn't ever think about it. It was basically, honestly, it was just a a career to make a living.
0: Yeah. When work is a means to an end that is really about survival and then ultimately trying to find a way to thrive enough to help your family, it all makes sense when we have the context of how you grew up. And I'd like to ask about your family. Did they end up most of them staying then in East Africa, or did any join you here in America?
1: Well, in the early days of my career, I used to bring my parents here all the time, every year, uh, and they would come stay with me for a couple of months, and they would get bored because I was at work, my wife was at work, and and uh, they would not have anywhere to go. In East Africa, you just walk to the neighbor, knock the door, and have have coffee or chow with them or tea uh, you know that 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 uh, environment uh, that comfort zone uh, was not there here plus they did not know the language so i even enrolled my parents in english as second language at a community college and one day i came home from work and my mother was sobbing and i said mom what happened and she said why do you want me to learn this language at my age i don't understand i don't know how to talk in english i don't want it i want to go back and so so the cultural difference is is quite traumatic you know it's quite traumatic i had to go through that you know and and so so and then as i get older it was difficult to travel so far because it's quite a a journey so my oldest brother uh, lives in, in Kenya, even today. And he was the one, and his wife, uh, they, 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 they took care of our parents all these years. Yeah. And uh, my, I have two sisters. One sister is in Canada. Uh, um, we are blessed that both of them are doctors. One is a transplant surgeon in, uh, uh, in Omaha. Um, and and then uh, I have another sister who is in Houston. She was my accountant, bookkeeper. You know, on the job training, so she took care of all of her accounting. And uh, uh, her daughter is uh, pursuing a PhD at Dartmouth. Okay. And so you know, uh, uh, so so you know, and and I have two daughters. Um, I, I went to school in one classroom school, and uh, my two daughters, uh, my two daughters are are uh, both Ivy League graduates. From,
0: from those pinhole cardboard glasses for you to watch a movie, from that great wisdom of your dad, and the loving guidance of both your parents, to seeing all of your you and your siblings and now your children be successful, there, there surely was wisdom that was passed along through this family. It's wonderful.
1: It's a tremendous blessing. And I'm, I tell you and I tell anybody I, you know who, who listens to me that the United States of America is heaven on earth.
0: So the other thing I wanted to ask you about was that you were a very active participant in and influencer of a program called Optometry Giving Sight, which my former partner in practice, Vic Connors, was involved with. Why did that program mean so much to you? I I see this idea of functional blindness, not having a vision correction being at the soul of the program and obviously we understand your story but tell us a little bit about what you saw in it and and do you have any updates on how it does today
1: yeah um i was uh, always involved in community work but my community work was focused around my community um and i served in many capacities uh including the chairman of the religious education board for Southwestern United States, et cetera, et cetera. So I did that. Uh, it's, it's an appointed position for three years at a time. And I did the secular education and religious education and others in between and health and all that. And then there comes a time in the community leadership that you are turn because you don't want to just recycle you know, people. You want new blood so they can all bring in their new ideas. So my, my term got ended, and I'd served all the various institutions for many years. And then uh, I had to sit back uh, with my family and say, OK, what do I want to do? Right around at that time, and mind well, I had not done much about eyes as far as community services is concerned. Uh, right about at that time, Optometry Giving Site had a contest, uh, and they were, they were awarding a trip to Uganda. So I said, "Wow, what better than that?" So I did what I needed to do, and I got the trip. So I went to Uganda, and I just fell in love. I'll be honest with you. Till then, I had a little interest in going back to East Africa because of, you know, the issues that that uh, were there—economic, uh, political issues, etc. Uh, targeted to certain kinds of people, uh, so, so when I went to Uganda, I just fell in love. I, I said, I, if I can do this in Uganda, which is a, just a neighboring country to Tanzania, I said, why shouldn't I do this in my country of origin? So then the next year, I went to Tanzania, again with optometry giving sight and our relationship you know, was nurtured. Uh, Connor's, uh, Dr. Connors, uh, blessed soul, uh, was very instrumental in, in nurturing me and very, very understanding and helpful. Okay? And uh, Glenn also uh, was also a motivator because he did mission trips all over the world for many, many years and he still does. Incredible. Um, so I went to Tanzania, uh, went to my village where I was born and uh, the rest is history. It's just I just uh, was in love and uh, um, uh, as you know, fast forward today, you may know uh, that uh, we are about to start uh, two cataract surgical centers in my district where I was born and we are all set. We have hired ophthalmologists, optometrists, We have physical building, um, and we have all the equipment. Uh, We are just awaiting uh, the green light from the government uh, to open the clinic, and we will be seeing patients, and this is charity clinics. And this is the first time, uh, uh, Scott, that uh, there will be a facility In the entire region of anywhere between three and four million people who will have access to cataract surgeries. This is just historic. And And
0: has has this been an endeavor you have um, fronted or partnered with somebody on? Uh, With whom are you responsible
1: for doing this? Or has it really been something you've done on your own? So, it's a, that's a very good question, and I'm glad you asked because I need to give credit where credit is due. Uh, a, Optometry Giving site. I continued my relationship with them and it still is very, very strong. Uh, and Marie and Eric with Optometry Giving site. we have a conference call every Wednesday, so tonight at 10 p.m. Uh, Central Time, we have a call. Um, so, that's one organization, which is a fundraising organization. And I want to also take this opportunity and thank Vision Source uh, for supporting uh, over the last twelve months uh, uh, for this clinic, um, and then uh, Brian Holden Foundation from Australia. Uh, they are the implementing partners. Uh, so when we sign our uh, our documentation with uh, with uh, the government of Tanzania, uh, you need uh, an entity. And that is that Brian Holden entity which does all the uh, the, the uh, memorandum of understanding, etc., uh, all that. And I am the one who makes it go because I know the terrain, I know the language, I am passionate about it. And uh, these two surgical centers and another optometric practice which has been going on for a few years now, uh, I'm blessed and, and honored that uh, uh, it is named after my late father, uh, and so this clinics uh, will be opening as uh, uh, Roshan Ali Nasser Eye Clinics. Uh, and so it's it's uh, I'm not retired. Uh, my my patient and my time is going into that, and uh, the goal ultimately, Scott, is to institutionalize these entities so they are self-sufficient uh, and, and there is a a, a a process that we are working on, on how to make that happen. Okay, basically it is uh, charging the rich, serving the poor. Okay, and there are some rich folks in the community, the farmers and businessmen and all that, and this is the facility that they can go to. So we'll be charging them and serving the pool. So hoping that it can be self-supporting in a couple of years. In that way, we can open more clinics and expand our our scope in different parts of uh, the country.
0: Well, congratulations on that. And that really is optometry giving back. And I'm so thrilled to have watched that process. And I, I know you do it. I had to have named that clinic after your father and uh, to see it come to life gosh the pride just uh, must be great but i know the work is is never ending and and let, let's talk about the work of building your clinic in houston so you did go from the single doctor practice to a team of 7 doctors and 45 staff you were very involved in the Vision Source Doctor Alliance Group and leading others to build practice performance with the tools that that organization gave you. What was the key to your business success as you grew? Was there any one thread or one theme that you hit on that gave you such a, a wonderful growth in that business?
1: Uh. <clears throat> I think it's very simple. You know, my philosophy was always, as I'm sure is yours and many of the optometrists who have done so well in the community, is to take care of your patients. Okay, respect them, be clinically sound, practice optometry that is allowed by your state uh, to its full scope and and do what is right for them okay? and they will come back and they will refer patients. This is just uh, everybody knows that but it's not as easy to do it. It's easy to just say that uh, but it's difficult to do it uh, sometimes because it compromises some of your, uh, whether it's uh, <coughs> business, whether it is your uh, you know other uh, value systems, etc. You got to help the patient. It Doesn't matter what insurance that patient has when he's sitting, he or she is sitting on the chair. You got to do the best like you would do for your family. Period. Okay. And in my early days, I used to do something very interesting, and I think this was uh, uh, taught to me by uh, Harriet Stein. Harriet Stein was a was an amazing uh, practice management guru. In the 80s, <clears throat> and in one session I had with her, she had told us that blindfold yourself every Sunday evening for your favorite TV program for half an hour, an hour, and realize what skill sets you have to be able to help those folks, those patients who may have compromised vision. And and I did that, and and that has stayed with me all along. That. You got to take care of your patients, and so that's all I did. Uh, but I was also very ambitious. I wanted to to make sure that my children and my grandchildren don't ever go to a position like I was, that I couldn't have food to eat. And I used to pretend that I'm I've had dinner at a friend's house so my mother could eat the leftover, rather than my mother leaving it for me. And I didn't want my children or grandchildren to go through that. So I had the drive to work hard, and and I did. So I saw patients six days a week. Uh, you come to my office, and we are about to close, and you say, "I need an eye exam." Absolutely yes. You know, and that is what I tell people. When I was leading the Vision Source in the Houston area, uh, we grew from about 18 offices to 63. You know, I used to tell everybody that. <clears throat> If you want to be in private practice, then you got to. You can't be lazy. You got to see the patient when the patient needs you. Okay, your golf game, your dinner plans, have to wait. You know, and my wife sometimes, of course, complain about that. But that's that's what it is. I hope I'm yeah. answering your question.
0: You are. I mean, and I think that we all have to look in the mirror and think about the ambition we have to drive our business forward, and sometimes it's about the opportunities to provide the patients with things that they can purchase and make their visual uh, life better, but it's ultimately about making sure that we're every day reinvigorating ourselves to drive forward on patient care. There were times, Mos, where I would be in the back office and somebody would show up that didn't have an appointment, and I might roll my eyes and think, oh, right. But the staff, when asking me, what should we do? The answer is they're here. Let's take care of them. And I think that that's sometimes hard for our listeners to think about that. We have a schedule and we're going to fit that schedule and I just am really glad you're articulating that this is what made you successful. It's one at a time taking care of them. And it it seems so simple, but I think it's very difficult to really commit to it fully.
1: It is, it is. You're absolutely right. It's a commitment. Easy to talk about it, but to do it takes sacrifice. And not only individual sacrifice of yourself as an optometrist, but the sacrifice from the family. So if I'm going to take that walk-in patient, then I may have missed my daughter's basketball game. And I may be told about that even today. But deep inside, you know that what you did. And as my two daughters uh, have become amazing adults, and we talk about those things, and they definitely understand. They may have not understood it at that time, but they definitely understand it now that, wow, you you are doing this for us, you know? And and so, you know, but we need to have that courage of conviction and stick to that and, and do the right thing. And it's not easy. It's not easy when somebody says I can't afford glasses and you say, oh no, so we gotta give them free glasses. Okay, all right, select some glasses and they end up selecting a Gucci pair or whatever, right? and then sometimes you have to talk them out of it says no we can't do this one but we can do this one whatever your 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 mindset is and whatever your philosophy is but it takes uh, sacrifice you know, whether it's individually or of the family of sometimes you know value systems somebody is uh, you know they are in bad social habits and they're spending money in that arena but they're wanting a free pair of glasses from you and you got to decide what is right. We got to do what is right for the patient and and don't judge them. I think the best thing in my mind would be, let us not be judgmental. We don't know the context, we don't know the situation of these individuals and, and we have to just play it the way it is. Well said. Uh, you told me that you visited
0: 48 countries. You've well described your upbringing and your trip back to Uganda, on the uh, the opportunity with optometry giving site and your reluctance to go there. But you've you've gone out and you've got this perspective that many of us who live in America, born and raised here, don't understand. And I think it it creates a more even more grounded appreciation for this country than many of us who haven't traveled. What have you learned, and can you tell us about life here? compared to what you've seen elsewhere that helps you say so convictedly that this is such a wonderful place.
1: I'm so glad you're asking me this question. And I hope and pray that there's one optometrist out there who will listen to this and and, and I'll be very happy. The United States of America has tremendous resources. So many schools, colleges, universities, libraries, etc. To to drive the point home, when I was in high school, I couldn't afford a textbook. And the rich classmate of mine used to bully me and, 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 and tell me to do some silly stuff for him so I could borrow that textbook for a day. Okay. In United States, you want a book, you can have access to that, as simple as that. And book is just a, a, a metaphor, you know? I mean, there are many other things that, that, that are available in the United States, as long as you are not lazy and you're willing to work. Anybody can have a dignified and self-respecting life okay? if you're just willing to work. Okay, and that is what this country has that most other countries don't have, including Western world, including European countries, including Canada. You know, we have that, and. And that doesn't come free. You know, when we have Memorial Day, we you know, do barbecue and enjoy the day. But I hope and pray that and many of us do reflect on the day and say, how many people lost their lives for our freedom? Okay. I'm sitting here in my home and I know I'm secure. Okay. And to, to give you another point, I was in Kenya at my brother's house a few years ago. And we went went out for dinner. We came home and the house was broken into. So my brother calls the police and the police says, this is in the last seven years or so, the police says, we are happy to come to your house, but we don't have petrol, which is gas in our vehicle. So if you can come to the police station and give us one gallon of petrol or gas, we will come to your house okay this is unheard of here you know we have power failure for 3 hours and we are up in arms at what's wrong with you guys you know why did you do that why? you know we have so much gotten not gotten spoiled and i think we need to read uh, watch some documentaries about other countries, and see how blessed we are. You know, Once, for yeah. me, somebody who is born in another country, I don't know. I have no idea what my parents and grandparents and my great grandparents' prayers and supplications is the reason why I'm here. Why me? There are millions of people, billion people in Africa. You know, billion people in Asia, or more than that, right? You know, so so why me? Why am I in America? And I often ask this question. And, I, and this is a country that can do wonders for anybody. You hear stories after stories after stories. Anyway, I think I'm
0: that's very well said, Mose. And I want to translate that now to optometry. There are opportunities. For people in optometry, there are also some threats to optometry. Can you summarize what you would sense is the key to the future of optometry?
1: So, I certainly don't consider myself an expert in that. So, I will share with you my two cents worth, you know, maybe one cents worth. Uh, I have some observations, you know. Uh, that I think we are at crossroads okay? and we have to be very careful as a profession. Um, we are at crossroads because the technology available to us and it is within the scope of optometric practices but these pieces of technology, these boxes are getting more and more expensive and the reimbursements are dwindling so frankly i don't think there is more than a single digit percentage of optometrists who make money out of an oct which is fine it's not that you have to make money out of a technology which gives you much added information but sooner or later it will not be affordable to a single practitioner. And you are judged based on the standard of care in the community and at the teaching institution in the community in Houston. It's the University of Houston. Okay, So if you don't have this technology, you could be considered uh, having a malpractice situation. But it's not affordable. So what will our profession do about that? Okay. That's one. It's tied up to the reimbursement. Okay. Uh, and as you know, you know, there's reimbursement, and then there's reimbursement. You know? So, so it's, it's something that we as a profession need to look into very carefully. And I'm, I would not be surprised that many good minds are already looking into that and may have a solution for that, I'm not aware of that. So so that's one thing. So I feel and I believe that it will be coming time very soon that individual practitioners and an average practice in the United States does about $800,000. $800,000 revenue is not enough to buy several of these technology. You can't have a fundus camera and an OCT and this, that and the other and dry eyes and all that. You can't. It's not economically viable, okay? So, so my thoughts are that these practices need to come together. You know, so there still could be uh, uh, inde- independent practices in one building. So you have a one front desk as an example and it would triage the patients to different doctors. Mm-hmm. and and so it's what <clears throat> what you keep is what you kill you know and so 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 it will still be a notion of independency but you know the the equipment would be centralized they all can be using that equipment now all of a sudden if five doctors join hands mm-hmm. then that technology is <clears throat> affordable <clears throat> excuse me It's affordable so to me, that is a very important part of practices that are average practices. If there are bigger practices, then they can afford this equipment. Okay. So the the other model that I think will come in future is uh, optometric referral centers, like the mini-surgical centers where a surgeon A will go to this center to do the surgery. Surgeon B will go to the sur- same center to do surgery, etc. And still build for their patients. In the same vein, you know, we as optometrists can have referral centers, Okay, either owned by all these optometrists put together. They can still have their own practice. But I'm going to send you to our referral center for this test, and I'll see you back next week or whatever mm-hmm. it is. In that way, you can have the shared expenses and more access to technology. So to me, that is uh, important. The other thing about uh, eyeglass cells, uh, I know many people will disagree with me, but uh, a lot of our revenue comes from eyeglass cells. And, and, And the conversion to our patients buying glasses from us is dwindling very steadily. It's on the decline, okay? Because they, they can buy glasses from other sources, okay? And I have for for uh, uh, trying to get an experience. I have ordered glasses from many of these internet sites, and agree with me, disagree with me. Uh, they're decent quality glasses. Some of us feel that they're not, you know. I respect that, but you know that business is is eroding, and I don't know what the answer to that is. As I said, you know my my pay scale doesn't allow me to, to 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 talk about those things, but uh, that's certainly a threat. You know.
0: Well, it seems to me that as we talked about earlier, um, it's a matter of conviction and finding out and determining what your philosophy is and. And sometimes it may be that we come up with new ways of running practices or this referral center idea is a great one. And like you said, maybe it's not your pay scale to recommend ideas, but maybe just something you mentioned here is going to spark a thought in somebody else's mind. So I appreciate you giving it. I want to ask you one last question. I know you're a, a voracious reader. Your library behind you looks full of what probably are very interesting books. But I want to ask you this question to finish. What does reading do for your
1: mind? Reading teaches me something every day. So now I read on my iPad, and I have that Apple Pencil, and I highlight. And hardly two or three pages go by and I don't highlight something because... To me, it allows me to learn every moment I read. You know, the thing that I grapple with is that, okay, I learned something. But it is of no good if it is not used. So how do I put these ideas in buckets and open this bucket when I need to use it? That to me has been a challenge, and I'm being more and more creative about that because I'm writing a book, and 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 so I'm I'm trying to see, you know, which box to open, which bucket to open for the ideas, etc., and understanding. So I'm trying now. I'm at a stage in my life that I have more time, uh, so I'm uh, I'm applying the skills that I'm learning. Whether I'm reading or talking to you or talking to so many wise men. And that's one thing I'll tell people out there listen to people who are older than you and even younger than you. There's so much ideas, so many ideas, so many things, but don't just put it in one ear and out the other. Do something about it, use it. And you can't use 17 ideas you learned at a weekend seminar but write down the two or three things that you're going to implement, and implement it till it's institutionalized before you start on a new project, because it's very easy to introduce on Monday morning after the weekend meeting that, let's do this, 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 you know, even your staff doesn't like you for that because you have <laughs> full of ideas. But then those ideas will die off in a few weeks if they are not institutionalized. We are very good at, you know, starting things, but To institutionalize them, it takes another level of commitment. So going back to reading, I think we need to, I I learn a lot from reading, but what do I do with that learning is something I'm still grappling with.
0: It's a lifelong of learning. Dr. Mose Nasser, thank you for your contributions to both optometry and to our global society. I know your colleagues have appreciated your stories and I hope they'll follow your lead in giving back to
1: others thank you and thank you for what you do uh, honestly i mean this may uh, this is uh, not i'm saying it from the bottom of my heart for what you did if it's software in optometric world uh, it's amazing it has made life and record keeping so much better and easier that we can focus that time on doing other things you know in, in a practice so thank you for putting your mind into that and many other things that you do and I've always admired you as I've told you that and and, uh, thank you for doing what you do and thanks to all the optometrists who do what they do uh, and and, uh, it's a wonderful profession and let's continue to enjoy it.
0: I sure appreciated our conversation and I know the audience has too. Thank you all for attending and until my next sandbox story, be great at all you do.